You are listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The Cardinal Health Counter-Talk Podcast in collaboration with Pharmacy Podcast Network is for independent pharmacists to learn about the state of the industry, innovative services and solutions, and the future of pharmacy. Join me, your host, Jason Calori, for conversations with pharmacists, Cardinal Health leaders, and industry experts sharing best practices, discussing industry trends, and showcasing Cardinal Health products and services. You can subscribe to the Cardinal Health Counter-Talk Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cardinal Health Counter Talk podcast. I'm your host, Jason Calori, and today we are tackling a very interesting topic that I've been interested in learning more about, and that's biosimilars, what they are, its impact on the independent pharmacy, how many are there, all of it. I want to know all of it. (laughs) And to find out, we have two incredible guests to talk to. First, we have Sonia Oshkwi, who serves as vice president of biosimilars for Cardinal Health where she is charged with leading the national biosimilar strategy across the organization. She leverages an enterprise uh, perspective to maximize the value of biosimilars to enhance patient access to critical therapies while lowering the cost of high quality care. Along with her, we have Jeff Baldetti, who serves as director of biosimilars at Cardinal Health with responsibility for leading the retail biosimilar strategy. Absolute pleasure to have you guys. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. And Jeff, how are you doing, bud? I'm great. Thanks for having us. Perfect. Glad you guys are on the show. Okay, so let's dive in here. Give a little bit of a give a little bit of a crash course on biosimilars to the audience. First, let's cover what a biosimilar is. Now, from my reading and understanding, biosimilars are essentially generics, but not generics because they don't have the same chemical makeup. Uh, since they're biological, they can have some variability that excludes it from being a standard generic, but I guess that was kind of my understanding. I tried, but I'll leave it to you, Sonia. I'll leave this to you to explain it a little bit. No, that was not bad at all. But um, so biosimilars are FDA approved biologic treatments that are highly similar to existing biologics on the market. So to your point, it is very much so like the relationship between a brand and a generic drug. The reason why it's not called generics is because generics are made from chemicals. So manufacturing them and reproducing them, you can basically copy paste and get these identical copies. Biosimilars, since they're made from biologics, there's inherent variability in them because they're made from living cells. So the best you can get ultimately when you manufacture and try to replicate them is a highly similar version, hence the term biosimilar. And I would say one of my favorite analogies to describe this Um, is that you could think about it like wine. So you pick the same type of grapes from the same part of the vineyard, same part of the year, uh, and make bottles of wine. Even though it's all the same, you're going to have slight variations between bottles of wine because they're made from living cells. So that speaks to the nature of products when they're made from these living cells. Interesting. How, I mean, how long have we seen biosimilars in the U.S.? How, How long have they been approved for? And how many do we have right now that's that's been approved in the United States or even just globally? Yeah, so today in the U.S., we have 34 FDA-approved biosimilars. 21 of them are commercially available on the market. And our first biosimilar was approved in the U.S. in 2015. Um, but the regulatory pathway to bring biosimilars to market wasn't established until the ACA was passed and it was implemented in 2010. Um, was the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act. And this is what created the FDA regulatory approval pathway to have biosimilars be approved. 
Now you mentioned globally. So if we take a step back and look at globally, we are not, I would say leaders in this space. We're not, we're not the first ones to tackle it. The EU more specifically, the European Union has the most robust biosimilars experience. The first biosimilar approved there was in 2006. So they have over 15 years of experience with biosimilars, which quite frankly serves as valuable data and information that we can leverage here as we get more products in the US. Now, what I was reading as well is while it costs more to create a biosimilar, we're looking as far in the long term that that essentially biosimilars can end up being cheaper uh, cost savings wise to the patient. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, the cost savings is the epitome of the promise of biosimilars. And it's the reason why I'm so passionate about this space and why there's so much focus on it. Um, So yes, being a biologic and complex molecule still takes significant investment to manufacture a biosimilar. However, they're expected, and we've seen trends already, to come in with you know, between 15 and 35% discounts, what we've seen in the medical benefit thus far, um, compared to the originator biologic. So the whole promise here is to bring increased competition to some of the most costly treatment options out there, therefore lowering costs and enhancing patient access and affordability of these agents. Biologics as a whole is the most expensive drug category in the world. Interesting. Uh, Jeff, let's, uh, let's, let's shift to you a little bit. Now, biosimilars are approved through an abbreviated pathway, um, as as we heard. It, what is it, Section 351K of the Public Health Service Act, correct? Yeah, you got it, 351K. So when we're, when we're talking about a biosimilar being an interchangeable designation, can you explain what that is? Yeah, no, that's a great question. This is actually kind of one of the areas where we actually get a lot of questions about quite regularly. And so I guess I will start and first say that interchangeability is a unique to the US regulatory designation that a biosimilar manufacturer can achieve by submitting additional data with the FDA. This is generally done in the form of switching studies where you design a study where a patient will be placed on a reference product, transitioned to a biosimilar and back and forth at least three times to prove that there was no difference in outcome by switching between the products rather than if they would have stayed on one product the entire time. So there, so there is some FDA criteria to get this designation, correct? Yeah, so there's FDA okay. criteria that's been released over several years in the form of draft guidance on how to basically achieve inter- an interchangeability designation. And so once the, that is done and the information is submitted, the FDA will review it um, and a product can be granted an interchangeability designation, which allows for automatic substitution by a pharmacist per individual state laws. And so I want to be very clear here. So interchangeability is not in any way a a signal of it being a superior product. It is purely the submission of additional data and review and then the granting of that regulatory designation. But it really does enable that automatic substitution at the pharmacy level, similar to what you have today with a, you know, a more small molecule generics. Um, And what's unique and important there is this is really kind of important for this next wave of biosimilars. We transitioned to more products being in the retail class of trade at retail pharmacies and specialty pharmacies, where the pharmacist is much more directly involved with the patient on what script they're receiving, rather than what we've experienced over the last seven years of biosimilars, where the majority of products until just last year are uh, predominantly uh, medical benefit products that are provider administered, either in a health system outpatient clinic or in a physician clinic. 
That's that's interesting. So going back to what you're talking about, state regulations, um, we've always seen a lot of different state to state, you know, regulatory uh, regulatory laws when it comes to just stuff that you know that that happens within pharmacy. You know, whether it be provider status, whether it be different you know regulations when it comes to insurance, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. What's kind of the 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 overall breadth of state regulatory? Uh, I guess, hurdles that, that, that we see for biosimilars. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So while interchangeability itself is a federal, a federal designation, you know, the, the distinctions are, you know, set out in draft guidance by the FDA, the actual operationalizing and the governing of interchangeability is handled at each of the state um, boards of pharmacy. And so all 50 states have their own boards of pharmacy that manage this biologic interchangeability. And so each one of them has separate requirements on what they call a biologic or an interchangeable product what documentation needs to be done by the, the pharmacist or provider that's doing the substitution, who they need to communicate that to, how long they need to retain those records. So each, each one of those factors can kind of vary from state to state. And so over the last several years, um, all, or, uh, all or nearly all 50 states have implemented uh, interchangeability language into their um, specific statutes. And there are just those variations. Uh, a lot of the times it's whether the, you know, phys- uh, the pharmacist needs to notify the prescriber within 48 hours of doing a switch, how long they need to document that they've had that patient's records um, that they did that switch. Um, and what's really um, challenging about this is because there are so many variations when you have large pharmacy organizations that have presences in several different states, it can be a lot to track. And so one of the things that we did early last summer, um, right before we had our first interchangeable biosimilar uh, approved in the market, which was a Semgly, which is a long acting insulin product that references Lantus, is we worked with our government relations team and, and state advisors to compile all of those specific pharmacy interchangeability laws across all 50 states and put it together in an interactive map for our retail pharmacy um, customers so that they can understand what their specific state mandates from a biologic interchangeability statute perspective. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, we, we have a, a map at Cardinal Health that that, um, that Jeff alluded to. Uh, you know, it's the, it shows the, it shows you the state laws for biosimilar interchangeability, pharmacy, law, pharmacy laws and practices, as we mentioned, vary from state to state, particularly when it comes to managing these interchangeable biosimilars. So uh, I believe we're gonna leave this in the, in the show notes. I believe we'll give you a link uh, to the map to help you navigate to your state-specific guidelines uh, and support patients with biosimilar adoption. So I think that'll be really helpful for the audience. Um, so Sonia, let's shift back to, to, to you here. Navigating the financials of biosimilars um, as far as we talked a little bit about development, how, how does it work for a biosimilar to be, I guess, adopted by a pharmacy or, or even, even a payer? What, what is the, yeah. the cost and the, uh, I guess, the procedures for that? Yeah, I mean, I would say the economic considerations for biosimilar adoption are, are probably the, is the area we speak about most and really support our provider and pharmacy network the most. Mm-hmm. Um, like Jeff alluded to and mentioned earlier, is primarily thus far with all the biosimilars on the market, it's primarily the medical benefit. So healthcare provider administered um, type of products and primarily in oncology with a handful in rheumatology. So when you look at the considerations for adoption in, in that area, 
um, it's really heavily influenced by the payer landscape and the managed care landscape. And that serves as one of the key challenges is being able to navigate all the various payer policies. So imagine if you're practicing in a healthcare institution, you have various patients coming in, they have different insurance policies, um, and those policies might require, you know, some might require biosimilar, some might require the originator, some say, oh, there's parity status. So as a healthcare provider to manage that's very tricky, which puts strain on your inventory, where then you mm -hmm. have to carry multiple products, um, making sure you do the right prior auth and you administer the right products. So there's a lot that goes behind these dynamics that are fueled by the managed care landscape. But I bring that up to say, it's almost like that was round one and we've had round one of biosimilars in the US. And now we're about to hit round two, which already kicked off with insulin where it's coming more into the pharmacy benefit space. So we're gonna see similar, um, likely challenges and just dynamics to manage the managed care landscape, but now more so with PBM formularies. Um, so that's going to be a, a huge role. And we've already seen that start to play out with, with the insulins and it's just going to continue to grow with the pipeline of products that are coming to market. Are now, because it's a biological product is, are they stored differently than, than most other, than most other uh, medications would be? They will be stored exactly how you need to store the originator product, essentially. Okay. So insulins, you know, refrigerated, I mean, these are going to be managed the same. These are intended and these are FDA approved to be just as safe and effective as the products on the market. So that's the management around them is going to be the same too. But one aspect around that that triggered a thought when you asked that is, you know, when we talk about biosimilars, what's important for these agents is that they're also market similar, meaning if patients are used to patient assistance programs or having copay programs and, um, you know, accessing these different support from the originator biologic, it's expected that these biosimilars offer the same, if not more support as they come to market. So it's a tricky dynamic because these are coming into market as lower cost alternatives, yet they do need to perform at the same level when it comes to support services for pharmacies and patients, et cetera. Yeah, you can't, you don't want to associate cheaper with, you know, less effective, even though it's cheaper, you want to make sure you're getting the same type of uh, right. medication that you're, that you've always been expecting. And that kind of leads into my next question, which is patient education. If I'm, if I'm a patient and I'm coming in and I, the, the pharmacy doesn't carry the regular insulin that I've been used to, it's like, right. well, we can offer you this. It's a biosimilar. And all of a sudden I'm freaking out. What are you giving me? What am I putting yeah. in my body? What is happening? How important is not only pharmacy education, but patient education in the biosimilar space? Oh, absolutely critical. And that's what we talk about often. And we have efforts around supporting our pharmacist networks and pharmacies to support patients on this topic. Um, it's interesting because retail pharmacists weren't really having to have discussions around biosimilars until the insulins got approved. And now that's available through a retail pharmacy setting. So we've done market research and we have various data, for example, in that biosimilars report we released in, uh, in February, and that gathers insights from pharmacists and making sure, you know, checking how well do they understand biosimilars, how comfortable do they feel counseling patients, what is needed to further support their efforts in supporting patients along their care journey when it comes to biosimilars. Um, and there are knowledge gaps, there's knowledge gaps across the board, but there needs to be a continued dedicated efforts to ensure pharmacists are equipped with the resources and tools to support patients, whether a new it's a new patient starting new biosimilar therapy, or to your point, switching from an originator to a biosimilar. Mm -hmm. So that is absolutely key um, in having clinical confidence, not only in our pharmacists, but then our patients 
feel that confidence as well. It has to be across the patient journey. Um, I'll also highlight in the biosimilars world, <laughs> there's this, there's studies out there, and this is very real, around a nocebo effect, where patients may have been switched from an originator biologic to a biosimilar, and then have the perception that they're doing worse despite any changes in clinical biomarkers. And that's called the nocebo effect. And what's been proven to help minimize the risk of that is patient intervention, patient engagement to help with adherence and compliance and making sure they feel comfortable with it. So again, I share that to reiterate the importance of patient education when it comes to biosimilars. Oh, nocebo effect. I mean, I've always heard of the placebo effect, right. but the nocebo effect, that's <laughs> exactly. definitely, it's definitely different. Uh, Jeff, to you, we, we mentioned insulin and um, how pop, I mean, you know, insulin is probably one of the most widely used, you know, medications that we have. Um, what other similar or retail biosimilar uh, products are in the pipeline? Yeah, no, that's a great question. There's a pretty robust pipeline of retail and specialty pharmacy presence biosimilars that are going to be coming to market over the next couple of years. So we've talked about right now, we have the one, which is a long-acting insulin product called Semgly um, that references Lantus. We are expected to have several other insulin biosimilars coming to market over the next couple of years. So both a Novolog or insulin aspart biosimilar, as well as a human insulin biosimilar expected to come to market over the next couple of years. And then outside of insulin and diabetes care products, we've got an array of uh, immunology products that are going to be coming to market. So probably the most, uh, Popularly known one would be Humira is expected to have quite robust biosimilar competition starting in 2023. Um, and so I'll add in there, you know, in the beginning when Sonia talked about the number of biosimilars we have approved versus the number that are commercially available, a huge chunk of that are biosimilars referencing Humira that have been FDA approved um, for several years in some cases that are all scheduled to come to market throughout 2023 as part of uh, litigation settlements between the reference manufacturer and the biosimilar companies. So there are seven FDA approved biosimilars for Humira. And then beyond that, we've got a couple of others, uh, biosimilars for Stellara and Actemra um, also in the pipeline. As far now, if I'm a pharmaceutical company and being that biosimilars is still a relatively new-ish space, are, am I targeting, so if I, if, cause I'm, I'm trying to get to the point of developing a new biosimilar, uh, when these are developed, what's the process of, of you know, these, um, these pharmaceutical companies, you know, wanting to develop a specific biosimilar? Mm -hmm. Is it, is it popularity in, mm -hmm. in the, in the, in the use of the drug? They feel like they can, you know, make something that's a little bit more cost effective, even though we're going to have to pay a lot more money to develop it in the long run. Most people will be able to use this at a cheaper price. Mm -hmm. um, what's, what's that process like? No, it's a great question. I would say so from the from the manufacturer perspective, one, you have to think that they're looking at these kind of portfolio decisions of products in long time frames. And so as we kind of talked about earlier, biosimilars, while cheaper to develop than a you know, an originator biologic or a reference biologic, they're still extremely expensive and can take between five and seven years to go through, develop, and bring to market. And so mm -hmm. these are decisions that manufacturers make on the scale of five and 10 years on what products they want to go and compete against and how they want to do that. Um, I would say one of the things that we kind of frequently see is if you look at any top expenditure list on, on drugs, generally speaking, at least, uh, 10, uh, 
to 15 of them have biosimilars either competing against them in the market today or have biosimilars in the pipeline expected to come to market. So generally speaking, I'd say a biosimilar manufacturer is going to go after uh, very costly biologic products that are coming up on their patent exclusivity periods, which um, is, uh, I believe, 12 years here in the U.S., and so that's kind of how they would start to do that. So they're looking for high cost therapeutic areas that don't have lots of competition that also have lots of, you know, applicable patient populations that could benefit from improved access here. Cause that's really the goal of these products is bring a product to market that can lower the cost and improve access for those that couldn't afford the biologic treatments today at the prices that they have. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll add, it's no coincidence that the number one selling drug in the world has seven FDA approved biosimilars waiting to launch in 2023. So <laughs> you can see the type of biologics uh, biosimilars are seeking to come to market for. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if we shift back now to the perspective of a retail independent pharmacist, uh, you know, our audience here uh, talking to them, you know, and I'm not sure, you know, your, your exact, um, I'm not sure of your exact experience, but talking to, you know, independent pharmacists and retail pharmacists on biosimilars, but besides we, we got into education a little bit, as far as, you know, what you're hearing from retail independence, what has the general population of retail independence, what has there been reaction? Are they open to adopting more biosimilars? Are they still a little bit sketchy about it? I just want to know what you're seeing out in the market. Yeah, and I and I could start, of course, Jeff, please, please add in here. So first, I'll say that I'm a, um, as a pharmacist, I'm an advocate for pharmacists. I'm very proud of the profession, the work this mm -hmm. category of stakeholders do. And I do believe pharmacists, uh, I mean, pharmacists are the medication experts. They, that is what we are trained to be and do and facilitate. And retail pharmacists and pharmacists in the communities have such strong influence on supporting patients through their care journey. Um, and I won't go on this tangent, but if you ever needed even more proof of that, is just look at the past two and a half years during COVID. Pharmacists have been absolutely instrumental mm -hmm. and critical to tackling this, this pandemic. Um, it's really uh, incredible the role pharmacists play in supporting patients in their care journey. So uh, yes, education is a big part of it. Um, but even more so biosimilars more broadly being educators and champions of these products is, is a great role and a key role that pharmacists can and do play. Um, I would say in addition to just the, the education, this is really now retail pharmacists specifically are in the position to facilitate access to lower cost alternatives. So um, this that's is a, through influence. Yeah, very good yeah. point. Yeah, very good exactly. Point. So this is now they could help find those opportunities or if it's a cash paying patient, for example, having an option of a lower cost alternatives could help find these pockets as well when it comes to affordability. So I definitely would highlight that as well. I would say overall there is um, from market research and discussions we have, there's not so much of a clinical hesitations that I've heard from retail pharmacists, but rather a desire for more information to further understand these products so they could best support patients. A lot of the insights we've gathered and, and responses and feedback has been, we're all for it if this means our patients can afford the medication. And this means we're going to have less risk of not adherence. So um, the desire is there from what we've seen. Jeff, would you like to add? No, I mean, I think you covered that, you know, very well. I think what we've seen is just honestly, 
there are several different, you know, things that we want to think about with these new retail biosimilars, whether it's, you know, the, the complex illnesses that they treat, it really creates opportunities for the retail pharmacist to further step into that role from, from a patient interaction standpoint, thinking about adherence and doing the interventions with patients and really being, you know, an integral part of the care journey there for these, you know, biosimilars that for a lot of these reference biologics have over the past several years shifted to different channels or shifted to different sites of care with the whole goal of biosimilars being enabling greater access and greater accessibility. It really is, you know, putting the pharmacist front and center on this next wave. Yeah. I mean, essentially if, if my pharmacists are going to offer me an alternative that's cheaper and works just as good, I mean, everybody wins in that, uh, you know, in that interaction when it comes to, the challenges for reimbursement, what does it look yep. like uh, from that front for a pharmacist? Yeah, that's what, to that point, to your question, Jason, <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say probably the number one question is, uh, is it going to be covered? What's the reimbursement look like? I mean, this, this can get a little messy, especially in the insulin space where we have, you know, the originator brand insulin, there's authorized generics, you have biosimilars and now interchangeable biosimilars and all these terminology and concepts um, that become confusing. And it's really going to be so much dictated by PBMs and the managed care landscape on which products are going to be preferred and utilized. So that is uh, a key area of consideration uh, that comes with these agents. But when we talk about the, I would say kind of the benefits of biosimilars, it's multifaceted because another benefit of having these biosimilars come, particularly in the insulin space, is that it almost, uh, you know, sheds extra light on the healthcare delivery model in the U.S. and the reimbursement model. So there is more discussion than ever around, well, first of all, insulin. You see a lot of these proposals out there about capping out-of-pocket costs and these laws and bills trying to be passed. Um, but it's take, it's enabling a deeper dive on just the healthcare delivery model that we have in the US that I think will lead to positive outcomes, especially when it comes to you know discussions around policy reform and others to be supportive of the reimbursement model, re retail pharmacies, et cetera. Well, just to add one more thing, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, but you know, these products are are all you know generally refrigerated products and patients are coming into a pharmacy and presenting with different insurance. So you might have 10, 20, 30 different payers involved when they're walking through your door. And if you have seven biosimilars where you used to have one reference product, it's operational considerations too, of where do you start to put these products to make sure that you can serve the patients that are coming to your pharmacy. And so how do you think about managing now I have, you know, seven adalimumab products rather than just having the one or in insulin, I have, you know, four or five insulin products instead of just the one. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, I, I guess, so for biosimilars, you know, when I first heard about it, maybe a few years ago, um, I thought, okay, so this is this is a, a a new sort of innovation as we're working our way through uh, what biosimilars are and what they could do and what they could provide for the collective care community. But now that we're getting so far into these products being developed, now we're getting into now, I think biosimilars being a little bit more critical to the healthcare landscape. I just want to kind of get your your guys' perspective on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to start and Sonia, you jump in. I, I think it's a, a great point. One of the things that we like to bring up is that, you know, as part of the BPCIA, the, the act that created the pathway for biosimilars, 
innovation is in the name. And so the whole goal of these products is to enable competition and greater access for products that are have been on the market through their exclusivity periods today so that it enables more of that healthcare dollar to get invested into the next generation of therapies, the ones that are better than what we have today. And so hopefully the goal of having biosimilars in a robust biosimilars market is to enable that innovation so that we can develop better therapies so that the products we have today become obsolete and then we do a better job of taking care of people in the future. So I think the innovation, it's its almost like a, a direct but indirect benefit of having biosimilar competition in the market is it's really fueling that next round. It's exciting. What about you, Sonia? I mean, that's spot on and that's competition fuels innovation, right? And we've already seen that happen where um, where there's biosimilar competition, you see innovation in the originator molecules or the innovator companies with creating uh, dual product administration forms, novel administration forms, or just completely new therapies that are enhancing even more patient outcomes. So it is fueling so much positivity when it comes to delivering healthcare. And like Jeff mentioned earlier, biologics in the U.S. get 12 years of market exclusivity. Um, but if you look at because of the patent litigation standpoint, some of these originator biologics have exclusivity on the US market for over 20 years. And in some cases can even be up to over 30 years. So this is an area that I feel passionate about where it's to his point is we can't keep consuming the healthcare dollar with originator biologics that have decades of market exclusivity. So the, the good and the positivity of bringing competition is multifaceted. There's lots of positive uh, outcomes as a result of having these products on the market. That's a that's a very very cool perspective. I mean, I'm just kind of listening to you guys today. Uh, I feel like I'm a little bit more educated, actually a lot more educated on biosimilars, and I'm <laughs> definitely want to. I'm definitely going to be kind of tracking this from my own point of view, just to see how how it goes along and how many more biosimilars come to the market. And I I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to we just said you know, the competition breeding innovation and just to see where this goes down the line. Are there any, for the audience, uh, from an audience perspective, are there any other resources you guys could recommend if any of, uh, of independent pharmacies uh, or pharmacists that are listening want to learn a little bit more about biosimilars? We we talked about the map from a state regulatory perspective, uh, which we'll leave in the show notes. Are there, are there any other places you guys would recommend? Yeah, I could start. I mean, of course, from a Cardinal Health perspective, we're very much so invested in this space and supporting our provider and pharmacy network with these products. So in addition to the state interchangeability map in, in February uh, of this year, we released a Cardinal Health biosimilars report, really reflecting on the experiences thus far and where we're headed. There's a lot of good uh, market research and data and insights in that report that I recommend. Um, in addition to, we have a robust pipeline resource. So if you want to have a better grasp of what's going to be coming to market and things that I should be thinking about, we also have that available. So all of these Cardinal Health resources are available on our publicly accessible website, which is just cardinalhealth.com slash biosimilars. So very easy to and straightforward. The other area that I would recommend uh, of looking for biosimilar resources is FDA's website. Um, I would say that's probably not something traditionally we thought like, let's go there for education, but as part of the bills and the um, and the acts that have been passed, the FDA has been hyperactive on creating educational resources when it comes to biosimilars, and they've developed a wealth of them. Uh, it's provider-facing, patient-facing. I mean, they have a lot of good material, so that would be another area to, to check out. Absolutely. Um, Jeff, what about, what about you? Any other resources from, uh, besides the state regulatory perspective? 
Uh, no, I think Sonia hit on, on all of them. We, we try and keep as robust an amount of resources available on the Cardinal Health website as we can. Um, but one of the things I guess I can add is that this is an area where when we're trying to think about tools to develop in the future, this is where we can really leverage the experience that you know, the pharmacies and the pharmacists that we interact with today are having. And so some of the resources that we've developed already are coming directly from, you know, pushes from our network on, you know, we need help analyzing this specific aspect of the market. And so as more of these products come to market, you know, this is where, you know, the more interaction we can have with our pharmacy network and, and pharmacists, the better we can be equipped to develop tools that are going to be helpful to navigate this space. So I guess I would leave that more as like an open invitation for if there are areas you're struggling with, we want to know about them. Yep. Well, to both of you, uh, Sonia and Jeff, I really appreciate you guys coming on and breaking down biosimilars, where we are, where we're going, some of the exciting things that are happening. I can't, I can't thank you guys enough. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you thank so you much. Yes. So for all of you listening out there, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Cardinal Health Counter Talk podcast. I'm your host, Jason Calori, and thanks again for listening. We will see you again very soon right here on the Cardinal Health Counter Talk podcast. Take care, everybody. Bye.